Um, anyway, Father, thank you that I'm back. Thank you that we're here. Thank you that um, thank you that we can um, come back and study your word together. Thank you, Lord, that um, you do exceedingly abundantly beyond anything we can ask or think. Thank you that um, you are about your work and you are doing what you have always promised to do and that things are happening according to your plan and your purpose in our lives and in the life of the church and in the life of the world and thank you Lord that we can count on that and that all of the things that are going on in our individual lives we can really know that you are sovereignly in control of those things and that you will work it out and I just love that verse Lord where you say that you honor those who honor you and so we can just be um, keeping our heads up lifting our eyes to you and deciding that we will honour you in our conversations, in our behaviour, in what we choose to do. And, and Father, knowing that you will help us to do that. So I thank you. I thank you for what we're going to discuss today. I thank you that you have enabled me to come back. And um, we praise you, Lord, and we want to tell you that we love you and we love being together. And and we want to, I want to thank you for this building and thank you for those who come and pray for anyone who's on their way and who um, is maybe not being able to park. Lord God, that you would intervene in that. And um, yeah, and we, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. For a long time I thought 1 Corinthians 7 was um, kind of a... I wanted to get it over with because I thought this is a chapter that we, you know, why do we need to know this stuff? We already know this stuff, you know, and I, um, but then I thought a little bit more about it and I suppose I studied a bit more as I started to feel better and um, and it came to me that um, where Paul's writing to the Corinthians, um, a lot of their issues are our issues, which we've already talked about. But in particular, um, te- uh, chapter 7, which is basically um, teaching on marriage or singleness and, or both, um, really is, is desperately needed in the church today. And it gives us um, uh, a foundation, really, and that's what I liked about it. So I went back over it all again, and I've been going back over it a hundred times. Every time I thought I was coming on Tuesday, I went over it again. And <laughs> so, um, But I then uh, came across some information which I hadn't seen before about um, what the law was in Roman days in Corinth, what, it, what the marital uh, situation was like in Corinth at the time that Paul was writing to them. And... Um, and what I found was that at fir- at the, f- the first thing, they had no set marital laws. So there were basically four different ways that you could uh, be married or um, live together. There were four senses or d- different states that you could be in. And the first was um, for slaves. There were tens of thousands of slaves. We can't imagine it, of course, in Sirencester, but in a town like Sirencester, there would have been tens of thousands of slaves in Corinth. And um, (coughs) they were owned by their master. And so if they decided, they didn't have any rights at all. And so if a man or a woman came to their owner and said, I want to be with this man or this woman, and I want to live with them, um, then the, the owner could say yes or no. And if he said yes, they basically went into an arrangement which was called a tent arrangement. It had a Roman 
um, word, which was um, conturbernium, which just meant tent companionship. But at any time, the owner could say, right, that's, that's enough. I don't want you to do that anymore and could sell off one or the other of them somewhere else or say that they couldn't live together like that. Um, so some of the Christians who, um, some of these new believers who were part of the church in Corinth were actually slaves and were in a relationship like that. So they were living in this tent companionship relationship at the whim or the mercy of their owner. And... Um, and could do so only as long as the owner allowed it. So um, the early church, especially Corinth and some of the bigger cities, had lots of problems in the church and in uh, when people were coming into the church or, sh or getting together in their house churches because they were in that sort of relationship and they didn't quite know how that sort of relationship would fit into the Christian, the new Christian lifestyle. So imagine Paul's writing to a church with lots of the believers in that sort of a relationship. And they didn't know how and what they were supposed to do. Imagine being a slave who had lived with another slave and maybe the wife or the, the woman or the man had become a believer and the other one wasn't. And they were still in this tent companionship and they were still owned by this, the master. Yeah. <coughs> at the whim of the master. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. But the children belonged to the yeah. master. Yeah. So there's, there's, there's that going on, um, and the owner could sell, or the husband, or the wife, or the woman, or the man. And, um, and so really, when you think about Paul's writing this letter, what's he supposed to say to them? You know, What's he supposed to say to them? Knowing what he knows, that a man should cleave to his wife and leave his parents and the two should become one flesh, which he often quotes. Knowing what he knows about marriage, that it's a lifetime commitment, yet having to speak to, into a situation where the people themselves don't have any authority over themselves, where their commitment to one another is actually meaningless if their master decides to sell. And then what do they do? What does the woman do or the man do who's become a believer and they have this partner, this tent companion? What do they do? So that's the first thing. Um, and Paul, all the way through, I think, as I read through this chapter, all the way through, you see he's not trying to um, lay down any hard and fast rules exactly, what he's trying to say is that marriage is a, is a sacrament and there's sanctity involved and that, um, and that he's trying to get to a situation where all the believers in any sort of relationship, and there are another three which we're going to talk about, in any sort of those relationship would understand that actually they belong to God first. So their, their whole thinking about their relationship has to come from that basis. I belong to God. What would God want me to do to preserve the sanctity of the relationship that I'm in? So that was the first one. Can I just ask yeah. Was he saying that they should be disobedient to their master then? No. No, he was trying to tell them 
honour God, uh, uh, you know, you, ha- you belong to your master. He's actually going to talk about slaves, isn't he, later in the chapter. He's going to say, if you're a slave, don't, don't try to get your freedom. So he, within the, the bounds that you have, honour God through your marriage. That's what he's trying to say. So the second way was um, um, you could live together for one year and at the end of the year you would be identified as a husband and wife. It was called um, USUS, U-S-U-S. And um, you, as I say, at the end of the year you would be um, identified as husband and wife. It's what we call common law marriage, just living together. And, that, uh, and they had, at the end of a certain amount of time, they would then be called husband and wife. So, no, they're not slaves, they're just anyone. So they could just come together, they could decide they want to live together, um, and then at the end of a year, they could be called um, married. But remember, they would have no legal document, nothing. So they would always just be what we would call common law partners. They would be common law. And again, Paul is going to say to them, there's sanctity in this in this relationship in this husband wife relationship whatever however you've gone into it whatever you call it there is a sanctity to it and there is a uh, there's the understanding that it is one man one woman for life um the third way that um you could be together is if the father sold his daughter you know for a price (coughs) so uh a man, young man would come and say, or a man would come and say he wanted the daughter, depending on the, on the value of the daughter, the, the father would sell his, wife, uh, his daughter to be married. That was the third way. Um, and the price would vary according to the girl, as I say. But the most elevated way, the fourth way, the most noble way was um, uh, a coming together on a, a much higher level was called confaratio. Doesn't I can give you the words later, and the entire marriage ceremony that they had in Rome is now what we have in our marriage ceremony. It's the way we do our marriages. It was taken by the Roman Catholic Church. It was moved into Christian circles, and it has nothing, absolutely nothing, to do with what the Hebrews did for their marriage ceremonies or even what Christians might come up with today. It is literally almost a pagan ceremony (laughs) because it comes straight out of pagan temples. I'll describe it to you after read through it. The Hebrew wedding lasted how long? A week. It lasted seven days. Um, but this was a one afternoon or one evening thing or one day. The two families came together. They picked someone who would be like a maid of honour. They picked a best man. They uh, went to the um, uh, into a building. They recited vows to each other. And then they uh, prayed prayers to Jupiter for their union. Um, Flowers, they always had flowers. They had a bridal wreath. um, And uh, the bride always wore a veil, which was lifted. I mean, it's quite incredible. When I read this stuff, I was just blown away by this, that our our Christian marriage ceremony is taken almost completely, directly, from a pagan ceremony. Um, There was a ring. And it was always put on the fourth finger of this hand. You know why? 
because they had found out in medical science that the nerve from the fourth finger on the left hand ran directly to the heart and therefore it was the right place for the ring. Um, <coughs> and when that was all, o all finished, they went to another place and guess what happened? They had cake. <laughs> they always had cake. Amazing. They had cake. So they would have this entire ceremony. They would pray prayers to Jupiter. They would put the ring on this finger. They would say vows to each other. There would be flowers. There'd be a bridal bouquet. They would then go off to another place and they would have cake and relax. And then the whole thing was finished. And that was the most noble. Uh, it was the way kind of... Um, aristocracy would be married or rich people would be married, yeah. Is it known whether or not um, their god Jupiter had any relation to the planet Jupiter? I don't know. I guess they m I must have done. Must have done, yeah. Must have done. Yes, because the Roman gods were Mars, they weren't they? Mars and, uh, yeah, they yeah. were planets, yeah. Um, now, think about all these different types of people coming into a church or coming into faith in Christ, coming and getting together, trying to do the right thing, trying to honour God, trying to live a Christian life, wondering what on earth am I supposed to be doing now? Think about how difficult that must have been for them. How difficult to be living with an unbeliever, suddenly they're a believer, at whatever level of these weddings they had gone through, these arrangements, whatever, wherever it was. And think about how was Paul going to answer a question that they'd asked him, because he starts with, now concerning the things which you wrote. So they're obviously asking him questions. And when you know this stuff, you can see why they might be asking questions. What am I supposed to, how am I supposed to live? And so, um, so the, the way that he answers, knowing all of that, really gives understanding in the way that I think he answers some of their questions and, the, and what he writes about. Add to that, what sort of a city was Corinth? It was immoral, completely immoral. The whole culture was promiscuous. So not only did you have these different types of marriage, you also had rampant promiscuity, homosexuality, um, just immorality of every description. So imagine, I just can't even imagine the confusion and the chaos that's going on in that city, in the believers. And now, when I think about it, move that to 2018. And just think about all the different type of relationships that are going on today. All the different types of um, marriage that we have to face. The promiscuity, the immorality, homosexuality, everything else that's going on. It is utter chaos, isn't it? And, and think how easy how, or how difficult it would have been to keep that out of the church in Corinth and how difficult it has been to keep it out of the church in our day. Um, uh, yeah. There were records, apparently, I, I got this out of a historical thing, that um, there were records of people who had been married as 27, 28 or 29 times because you could just simply discard whoever you were married to without any worry or any legal process. You could just finish. And, and that's what people did. 
Uh, it did to a certain extent, but it depended on your uh, social um, standing. Um, at the same time as that's going on, there was also a feminist revolution. There was also this, this uh, newfound freedom for women, and they were claiming it. Um, and, it, of course, inevitably, their marriages began to suffer. Because now women, not only was there this immorality, not only is there not a permanent status for marriage, you've also got now this ab ability to leave and to decide to go somewhere else, to meet someone else, to live somewhere else. So where it might have been difficult for women to do that, there was this sudden change going on and now it was much easier for women to do that. And again, I just can't help thinking of our day. Not that I, uh, I, you know, I'm not against feminism because I think in, in its, it has a place because there are, there are terrible abuses against women around the world. And you can't put every single um, woman in who wants to stand up for women's rights in this bag of feminist. You know, you just can't do it. But of course it has, it also has its problems um, and its extremes. And that's what they were having. Women were beginning to discard their husbands at the same rate that men were discarding their wives. And so you didn't have, um, well, as I say, it was just chaos. So the picture of marriage was very confused. For example, what are you gonna tell a man who used to live in tent companionship with a woman and the master sold the wife. What will you say to him about marriage? You're going to say he can, he can be in another tent relationship? Or are you going to say, no, that's your woman and she's been sold and that's it for you? What are you going to say? How are you going to answer that question? Um, do you think many masters would do that? They wouldn't care? Oh, yeah, I would think that was probably common. Yeah. 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 No. No. Um, now imagine then that uh, in the midst of all this confusion and chaos about marriage, along comes a teacher who says, actually, all you believers, God really wants you to be celibate. He actually wants you to be single. And I actually think because of all this confusion and chaos, it's just so much better to stay on your own. Imagine now how easy it would be to take that on and think, actually, that's right. And of course, that's exactly what the Roman Catholic Church did. They took on that teaching that God wanted everyone celibate, that that was the highest form of spirituality. And so you had all the monks and you had all the nuns who said, I'm staying celibate, I'm staying single my entire life. I'm going to be married to Jesus. That's where that started. It started in the midst of massive confusion and chaos and a church that was really struggling to know how to handle all these different cultural issues. And we struggle too. We struggle in exactly the same way. Um, so... 
the Corinthians had a lot of questions and chapter 7 starts this section of the letter where he's answering those questions. So let's, um, let's read the first six verses. Someone read chapter 7, verse 1 to 6, please. Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But this I say by way of concession, not of command. Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. Thank you. Okay, so what would you say is the main bulk of that passage? What is what does Paul, what's his main teaching in those first six or seven verses? Uh, to be faithful to each other. Yeah, faithful. Um, mutuality. Mutuality. There is a mutuality of responsibility in marriage, and it's he's directly using it about the sexual relationship. Um, we might uh, want to take it in all sorts of other ways, and probably you can, but he's saying the husband must fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise also the wife to her husband. So basically, that word duty means obligation. They have an obligation one to another. Now, you know when we have in our... Um, Sometimes you hear on romantic movies, or you know, I'm yours and you're mine. You know, I belong to you and you belong to me, and all of that wonderful romantic stuff. If you're into that, actually, that is what Paul is teaching. You don't belong to yourself. You belong to your husband or your wife. It's the same teaching to both husband and wife, and you have a responsibility to please your husband or your wife in a sexual relationship. Now, think about that, really, and think about how, I mean, you know, in my day, it was just, you know, I'll lie back and think of England, you know. I don't mean that, that we did that, but that was th one of the things that people said, you know, that women don't get enjoyment from sexual relationships, that it's not right and proper for women to enjoy sex. It's actually, uh, you know, that it's the wife's duty to fulfill her obligation to her husband, but the husband has no obligation to fulfill and doesn't even have a duty to fulfill the obligation to his wife. Now, you know from what he's just said that the situation that was in Corinth, what was the understanding in Corinth? No, not that. No, no. In marriage, what was the... It only mattered that men were happy, that women were just supposed to do their duty. You can see that because he says the husband must fulfill his duty to his wife. That was a radical statement in that, those days because husbands were, even though this feminist re revolution was beginning, husbands, men had control. 
they had control. And so Paul is saying right at the beginning of this, now concerning the things you wrote, and I think he's quoting, it is good for a man not to touch a woman, but because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife and each woman is to have her own husband. He is advocating marriage and what should go on in the marriage. Now imagine if this situation actually went on. Men decided they had a duty and it was what they wanted to do was to make their wife feel uh, to, to, to be pleased. And women also had that same understanding that they didn't belong to themselves, that their body was not their own. So the man's body was for the wife and the wife's body was for her husband. What do you think would stop happening in the, or at least hugely stop happening in the general congregation? Exactly. There would be much less immorality. There would be much less promiscuity. There would be much less divorce. There would be much less of that. And that's his point all the way through this chapter. You do not belong to yourself. You belong to your husband. You do not belong to yourself. You belong to your wife. And you have an obligation, a duty to render to your partner I don't like to use the word partner because we use that in different ways nowadays, but you have a, re um, a um, responsibility to render to your spouse what you have said because uh, you have joined that person. And he's basing that on a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and they will be one flesh. He wrote about it in Ephesians the wife should submit to her husband and the husband should love his wife as Christ loved the church. There should be this mutual surrender because he'll say about Christ, giving himself for her. And Paul's taking all of this and putting it all together and writing to the Corinthians and saying, you don't belong to yourselves anymore. If you enter a marital covenant, you belong to your spouse. And you have a responsibility to... Um, and as I say, that would have thrown, flown in the face of all custom then, much, much more even than today, although I think it would fly in the face of a lot of custom today. Yeah, but I, definitely then, it was much more radical then even than it is today, and even now it's quite radical. Um, and the, the word render has the idea of, I owe you this. I owe you this. So I'm not giving anything to you. I'm just paying my debt. I'm paying what I've said I would pay. Do you see what I mean? So it's not that you're doing them a favor by doing this. It's that I entered this agreement with you and that was part of the agreement. And I, this is what I owe you. This is my duty, my responsibility and actually my joy because um, what he's saying is stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time so that you may devote yourself to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. He's not just saying that to the men, he's saying it to the women too. Yeah. I don't think Paul had that idea. No. 
I think that was taken by the organization called the Roman Catholic Church and made to be a higher state. He didn't have that state. He says, I wish that you could be single like me, but only because, and he's going to explain why later in the lesson. He's going to say, because those who are single, it's a gift from God anyway to be single, just as it's a gift to be married, and you can focus yourself entirely on the Lord. Yes. Because he believed that the end was coming then. Oh, yeah. It, yeah, yes, yeah. I know exactly. mm. So this is where we see in the Roman Catholic tradition so often because it is really, in effect, an unnatural state, um, you get all the abuse. Of course. Abuse, yeah, yeah. Of, um, yeah. But let's just not keep yeah. it in the Catholics, Christian, oh because no. well, it's well, in the Protestants too. I mean, there's loads of vicars who are now starting to come up there in the Protestant church. Um, the. Uh, the um, depth of the ability of the human heart to sin is, mm. is you can't measure it. I was, when mm. I said celibacy just now, I, I really feel that in marriages, if the husband felt that it was more higher and holier to be celibate mm. than he was married, mm. he, he would abstain from his wife. Oh, I see what you mean. I thought you were saying celibacy. I thought he was teach. I thought you were saying he was mostly talking about celibacy. But guys do that, don't they? Because I know in the Orthodox Jewish traditions mm. today, the men can be really, really stuck. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 That's all part of the Jewish tradition. So no, no. So he's he's facing that because there would have been Jews in the church in Corinth, and he's also facing all of the cultural issues from the Roman Empire that's gone on in and is going on in Corinth. So he's facing all these different things, and he's trying to tell them, you do not have authority over your own body. You, you know, you've passed on that authority. You got married. It's a mutual agreement, and you cannot deprive each other. And the point is. We have a binding obligation to our spouse. Yeah, but it's, it's sexual respect he's talking about here. This is a binding obligation. Why would that be? It's not just sex, no. But here in Corinth, he's talking, now he's talking about sex. You do not have authority over your own body. So to bring some order into the chaos. Yeah, also, but what's his underlying, underlying foundational principle? It's the sanctity of marriage, yeah, but out of all the billions of people in the world, God gave you your spouse. God gave you your spouse. That's what he bases it on. God gave you your spouse. Out of all the billions of people in the world, this is who you've got. 
he's got you and you've got him or vice versa. And if you do not fulfill your obligation, that person lives a substandard life when God has given them you. But remember what I said right at the beginning, Juliet. Think about who he's writing to. Yeah. He's writing to people who are not married. Yeah. He's writing to people who are sharing a tent yeah. because they're slaves. He's writing to people who've just decided they're going to live together for a year and then they'll be called married. So he's not writing to a situation like we understand marriage. Yeah. He isn't. And the situation of marriage as we understand it is a pagan ritual yeah. with prayers to a pagan god. So we have to understand that when we're trying to move this into our day. Yeah. Go ahead, Suzanne. God says that right at the beginning, he says he's created the male and the female yeah. and they should become one body. Mm. So for God, when you are married to whoever you've been given to, it's the first time you have intimacy. Yes. And to people who have a one-night stand, in God's eyes, they were married to that person and they should stay there. That's where the difference is. We see marriage as this promise Well, first of all, first of all, well, first of all, I think that's a, a quite a big leap because the, you won't find that in scripture. Where do you find that in scripture? That God sees your first sexual partner as supposing there's incest, supposing there's rape, supposing there's there's lots of exceptions to that. So I think what I'm trying to do with this is to say when we're trying to understand what does he mean about being single and what does he mean about being married, we have to understand he's writing to people who are sharing a tent, who might share that tent their whole lives, who you and I would not call married, but who are married. And he's writing to people who went into it with a common law husband or wife and they decided to try it out for a year and then they might be called married. And during that year, maybe one of them became a believer and the other didn't. And what are they going to do now? Are they going to walk away? He's writing into situations that we don't have. We have this common law idea that we can... Uh, but he's trying to say to all of them, there is a relationship issue if you've made any sort of a commitment... Yes, if you have any sort of a commitment to someone, a heart commitment to someone, then you are committed to that person and you have to preserve the sanctity of that commitment. We'll call it marriage, uh, he'll call it marriage, but he's right into all sorts of different types of marriage. Exactly, exactly. Exactly, exactly. And I think that the whole thing is that he's, he's bringing the sexual relationship mm -hmm. into God's yeah. control and yeah. sphere, yes. Yes, and yeah. what he, he's only saying what, what Song of Solomon says. God yeah. invented yeah. sex. Mm -hmm. He gave it to you as a gift. Mm -hmm. And so therefore, if you have a, a, a spouse then you have an obligation. Exactly, exactly. So, uh, I mean, there are all sorts of, I mean, there are all sorts of different um, situations that we're having to face. But I think if we can understand that he was writing these words to people who may never have gone through a marriage ceremony. Mm -hmm. But, the difference is that 
to believers, definitely. So we can't say that this rule applies now. No, because we're not no, believers. no. We can't sort of try no, that no. To We've got no business judging the world. I mean, he said that in First mm -hmm. Corinthians. Uh, I'm not asking you to judge the world. I'm asking you to judge yourselves. So he's, but now we have to have an understanding, don't we, of how we're going to look at people inside the church. How are we going to think about Christians and their behaviour and what they're supposed to be and not be? How are we going to counsel people when they come with these issues? How, how are you going to talk to someone who's, who's not married but has lived together for 45 years? What are you going to say to them? Well, you're not married, so you've got to get out. No, Christians I'm talking about. What are you going to say to a Christian who says, I've come to the Lord and I'm a believer and my husband's not a believer or my wife's not a believer, but we've been married 40 years, what am I supposed to do? Well, what are you going to say to that person? And on what will you base what you say? That's what I'm saying. Yes, exactly. That's what, what I think we have to understand. Mm. Yes, I know, we're going to get to it. That's it, we are, definitely. But that's what I'm saying, Juliet. Now that we know it says that, we have a wonderful foundation, don't we? See, I know my husband's not a believer, you know. And so in some ways, the easiest thing to do would be to go. I mean, it wouldn't because I love him. But you know what I mean? It might be. I know many people married to unbelievers who have very bad marriages. And they want to go. They just want to go. And I don't blame them when I hear about their marriages. Is but that because they are a believer? Yes, exactly. Mm. Yeah. And so the they're... Change, yeah. 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 So their temptation is to go. And they may not be allowed to, to worship God. Exactly, to, to exactly. 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 There's all sorts of things. So anyway, what's the, um, the, the word for deprive here? Stop depriving one another, verse 5, is the same as defraud in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 8. It means defraud, so basically you're cheating someone out of something that, that, they, that is rightfully theirs. Do not deprive one another, um, except for the time when you might decide you're going to go into a time of abstinence together to do some particular thing. I guess it would be like a fast. or um, So... What would you say about sex in marriage? What do you think God's idea about sex in marriage is? Everything about it is good. It's a gift. It's a, exactly. It's a gift from God. And, and, it's, and, and he's, he's been pleased to give that. That's not what we understand usually about sex in marriage. It's not. It's not. Definitely not. Um, I mean, I, I accept that things are chaotic nowadays, but certainly in my lifetime, that is not the teaching that I would have understood from the Christian perspective. Um, so there's nothing wrong and everything right about sex in marriage. Now, what do you think Satan's strategy will be, knowing that? To undermine it. To undermine it in every way he can. So what are some of the ways he might do that? What might he do? Temptation outside. It's fair to say, not, not only within Christian culture, mm. but doubtless worldwide, there are a lot of people who have serious hang-ups about sex. Yeah, definitely. You know, to, to my way of thinking, that is um, the enemy just getting in there to see chaos, confusion, yeah. and make something that should be so natural and normal a 
So think about that in believers, Christian. Think about that inside the church. What would Satan's strategy be? Yeah, he would be, you know, it's a shameful thing. Sex is a shameful thing. It is, but not only, Julia. I think you would get that. I mean, certainly, I uh, when I first became a believer in Tokyo, I used to go to a Bible study with a, an American girl, lovely, lovely girl. She'd grown up in a particular church. I can't think of the name of it. Dancing was a sin. Dancing was a sin. Yeah, but what I mean is because it was dancing any in any which way because you were moving your body, and moving your body was a sin. Now imagine taking that teaching into your marriage. Yeah. That would be impossible. How would you know? So this is in my lifetime. This is Yeah. So Satan, it uh, Satan will do everything he can to discourage sex in marriage. He will do everything he can. No. I remember um, on the, I went to stay with her. We had a like a little hen party at her house, and she was getting dressed, and she had these most ridiculous underwear on that literally just covered everything. Mm. And she had to wear this on the day of her wedding mm. so that she would be seen as pure mm. underneath her dress. Mm. Mm. Can I also say um, mm. about the word of God that the enemy will keep us away from the word of God because only to understand what marriage is about, but to to know that we, when you're in a difficult situation, like yours is difficult, um, your husband not being saved and you are, but you persevere because you're being taught to persevere, you're being taught that God will walk with you through this, that God is the answer, he is the underlying, and that's where I think also the the enemy is busy at work. If he can keep this book shut, of course, that's knowledge, it. Yeah, of course, absolutely, so. that's it, exactly. Yeah. So he will do everything he can yeah. to undermine uh, the sanctity of marriage and the gift of sex in marriage. And and he's had a field day. And you know, for these Corinthians, just go back to chapter six, verse twelve. Um, well, he starts to say, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. And then he goes down, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. So you know that's what they were doing. They were doing that. <coughs> they were going for sex outside of marriage uh, because for some reason there was something wrong with it in marriage. or So... Um, uh, and uh, as I say, because of the teaching that was coming into the church, that it was more spiritual to be celibate. Um, I think there's a lot in that because, as a relatively new Christian, because it's only me at home, I've got more time to devote to this. Yeah. But when I speak to people who are married, exactly. who are married, they've got the children to yeah. look after, yeah. their husbands, their wives, yeah. and they've got that commitment. Yeah. So Exactly, and that's what Paul means when he says about being single. That's exactly what he means. You have more time to devote to the Lord because you don't have the other things. Now, uh, yeah, anyway, we'll get to that, yeah. So, um, could somebody read verse 7 to verse 24, please? 24, Yeah, all the way to 24. Well, well, from 8, actually. Mm. But I say to the unmarried and to 
even as I. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. But to the married I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave, the hus leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried, or else be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband should not divorce his wife. But to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband, and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O, o husband, whether you will save your wife? Only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each, in this manner let him walk. And so I direct in all the churches. Was any man called when he was already circumcised? He is not to become uncircumcised. Has anyone been called in uncircumcision? He's not to be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. But what matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. Each man must remain in that condition in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Do not worry about it. But if you are able also to become free, rather do that. For he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freed man. Likewise, he who was called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brethren, each one is to remain with God in that condition in which he was called. Thank you. Now, uh, what was Paul when he wrote this letter? What, what was his marital status? I he, was he was single. Yeah, he says, uh, you know, uh, at one time. But um, he was probably married at one time. Um, because um, he was an extremely observant Jew, and Jews, if they weren't married by the time they were 20, there was considered to be something wrong with them and their obedience to the law. Marriage was a duty for the Jews, and so um, almost certainly he would have been married. Also, he says in Acts 26 that he voted in the Sanhedrin. He cast his vote for the stoning of Stephen. Uh, he couldn't have been a member of the Sanhedrin without being married. So, think about the implication of that now when you read what he says about marriage and about singleness. He doesn't say what happened to his wife if he was married. I mean, I, I can't be absolutely positive, but I think he was probably married at one stage. What happened to his wife? Did she die? Did she leave when he became a believer? 
did that whole situation where he was met the Lord on the road to Damascus and get caught up to the third heaven and and spend you know three years with the Lord? Did that cause him her to go? I don't know. Yeah, slightly. So um, uh, we don't know, but uh, we do know that he had been married and he had been single. So again, God has called a uniquely experienced man to write a letter about marriage and singleness to this church. It's quite amazing, you know, how that's happened. So he's writing. What do you think his main point is in the verses that Rosie's just left, read? Yeah, that's true. So bring in as well the slavery and the circumcision. Bring that all in and what would be his message? So it's, yes, it's about marriage and singleness, but it's also... Yeah, as long as they're peace. What would you call the, you know, it's just his foundational message. Stay as you are. Stay as you are. Be content yeah. where you are. Be content with where you are. If, you, if you're a slave, don't try to leave. If you get offered your freedom, okay, take it. But, if you, but don't try to be what you're not. If you're circumcised, don't try to be uncircumcised and vice versa. If you're single, don't try to get married. If you're married, don't try to be single. If your spouse is an unbeliever, don't leave. Be content where you are. What's his reason for that? Yeah. What, 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 what is Paul's message about contentment? If somebody read Philippians 4, 10 to 14. Philippians chapter 4, verse 10 to 14. But I rejoice in the Lord greatly, that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. Thank you. I learned contentment. I learned contentment. What do you know about contentment then, just from that? It can be learned, but it's not a natural state for a human being. Very few human beings are naturally content. Why? Because, uh, or they want what they don't have. The grass is greener on the other side. Not even worldly things. If I asked, you know, if, if, if I went into a, a conference situation, let's say, and we had 100 people and uh, all mixed, and I said, who amongst you wants to be single? Or who amongst you wants to be married? There'd be several people who raised their hand. Who amongst you would like to be single? <laughs> there would be several people who raised their hands. Who would like to have live in a different place, several people. Who would like this? Who would like that? It would be lo everybody in the room would, s would probably raise their hand at something. And being single and being married, that is a biggie. I know lots of single women who want to be married and who pray for that all the time. 
I'm not saying that's wrong, by the way, but I'm, what I'm saying is Paul, when he writes this, when he wrote to the Philippians, he said, I have learned contentment. Contentment. So um, I came across a saying, happiness is not having what you want, it's wanting what you have. Yeah, I thought it was really good when I came across it. I wish it was mine, but it wasn't. I can't remember who said it. So, and I think that nowhere is that more real than in singleness and marriage. That's really a... Uh, um, so, Paul explains then, whether slave or free, whether circumcised or uncircumcised, whether single or married, uh, learn contentment. Be content where you are. And um, he'll, he'll go on, and his first, um, first uh, example will be uh, with marriage. So uh, we're going to stop there and take a break for 10 minutes. And um, oh yeah, it did whistle along. We'll just stop for 10 minutes. Um, please do share, though, if you can. If, you, if you're on Facebook, share Facebook posts from Desiring Truth. Um, you know, it's such a thrill. I get a notification on my phone where, where when people go on the website. I don't know your names, but I get uh, where you are. And, and when you um, get notification that someone in China or someone in South America or someone in um, India are on the website, it's so exciting, you know, and I just want to be talking to them. I, I do have the capability to talk to them, but I'm holding myself back, really. <laughs> But um, uh, or to start a chat line, you know, across the across the waves. But it's exciting, and um, you know, and I do honestly believe that we are in the very last of the last of the last days. Honestly, I believe that with all my heart. And um, not that it matters what I believe. I suppose it doesn't matter what I believe, but. If you're reading, if you look at what, what's happening in the world and you look at Bible prophecy, and we did Ezekiel not long ago, and you can remember what we talked about with Iran and Turkey and Russia and that coalition uh, coming against Israel. Um, we talked about that in the War of Gog and Magog. That is happening in front of our eyes, and that is the precursor to the tribulation. So there's no doubt that that's happening. So, sorry, Christian, hold on a sec. Um, so I, the reason I'm saying that is if it's the last of the last days, then people need more than a little phrase, a little comforting phrase. They need the word of God. That's what they need. And so, you know, in any which way we can get that, even if it's not desiring truth, even if you're posting for yourself scripture verses, we need to be doing that. We need to be doing that. Um, we have a, the next conference is May 12th, it's in South Cerny, because we haven't got enough room here, um, South Cerny Village Hall, apparently there's loads of parking, it's a nice place, um, and then two weeks after I'm going to be speaking, I've been invited to do a day in uh, United Reformed Church in um, Rockworth, so, um, so the, f the day in May uh, in South Cerny is called Finally Free, and the day which everyone is invited to, you can bring anybody to in United Reformed Church, Brockworth, is uh, powerfully transformed, and honestly, is that, is that hmm? 26th of May, it was the 12th of May and the 26th of May. I know you can't come to everything. I'm, I'm not suggesting that you need to come personally. I'm suggesting that you invite someone and you bring them along. 
Because you can be sure you know lots of believers who need to know the word of God and who need lifting up and building up because whatever they look like on Sunday is not always the reality through the week. So you need, you know, we are responsible to one another. And, um, and, on, and really, while I was away and I was praying and, uh, you know, really thinking about what we were supposed to be doing and, who, you know, what was it all about, you know, how you get when you're not well. You sort of, you know, you go into a little sludge, don't you, in the bottom, and then you have to work your way up. And But all of that, all the waiting on the Lord and praying, you know, two words, discipleship and evangelism, they have been in my mind for so long, and they were in my mind for this last four weeks. We have to be intentionally discipling other believers, and we have to be intentionally evangelizing. It's not enough to be a nice person. It's just not enough. There's hundreds of thousands of nice people, mm. and they're no, you know, <laughs> who are not believers. Yeah. We have to be more than that. Mm. Jesus wasn't actually a nice person. No, no, exactly. So we have to be intentional about our evangelism and intentional about our discipleship, and that's what we're going to be doing from now on through Desiring Truth. We're going to be uh, much more intentional about things, I hope. And I'm encouraging you to do that. Go ahead, Julia. This session in Brockwood, what mm. time is it? Uh, ten till four. Right. I know lots of Christians who uh, lost the royal. Oh, they've lost this. Okay. So they okay. So pass it on. There, there is a um, banner on our website, and they will be the church will be printing up those uh, for cards and invitations. So if you would like some, we can get you some. What were you going to say, Christian? The internet says. <coughs> Oh, I'm so glad I know. <laughs> I'm just so glad I know. I can get my bag packed in time. Because there's some things I'm going to need when I'm raptured. Absolutely. Can't do without. Yeah, definitely my makeup. No, no, I'm going to have a brand new face. Okay, so Father, thank you that um, thank you that there's so much we can be sure of and so much we can know and so much that we can, we can not be afraid, Lord. We know the truth and the truth has made us free and we can stand when all about us is falling. We can stand on the truth that you are our sovereign God and we belong to you. I'm so grateful for that, Lord. I'm so grateful that you put me in your word. And and that then that word is accessible to me and to us, Lord God, that we can come to it any time we want to and understand and hear from you. And I pray, Lord God, that we see that, that I see that for the privilege that it is, and that I start to be intentional about what what I do every day of my life, Lord. That I understand that this time is not my own. It's given to me by you. And I pray, Father, that you would help me and, and make me understand that you will do great and mighty things through me if I set myself apart for you. So I pray, Lord God, for that understanding for all of us. I pray for all of those who are not here today, uh, maybe didn't understand that we were starting or maybe there was something else came up and they couldn't get, get here today. So I pray for them, Lord, that you bring them next week and that we start to understand we have... We have been so privileged to be part of what you are doing in this area and help us, Lord God, to understand that there's more that you're going to do through us. In Jesus' name, amen.
Um, okay, so could somebody read from verse 25 through to, um, uh, let's say, 35, please. 25 to 35. To the unmarried and widows. No, wrong, wrong 25. Now, First Corinthians 7, 7, verse 25. Oh, 7.25. Yeah. Okay. Concerning virgins, mm. I have no commitment from the Lord, yet I give judgment. As one whom the Lord, in his mercy, has made trustworthy. I suppose, therefore, that this is good because of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be loosed. Are you loosed from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But even if you do marry, you have not sinned, and if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Nevertheless, such will have trouble in the flesh, but I will spare you. But this I say, brethren, the time is short, so that from now on even those whose wives should be as though they spare you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, what translation have you got? Um, um, New King James. New King James. Okay, thank you. You just uh, missed out a sentence. Um, verse 33, but one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife, and his interests are divided, mm-hmm. or he is divided. And then the woman, he says the same about the woman. So the, New King, the King James left out his interests are divided. It doesn't matter really, but it's just, I noticed there was a difference. Okay, so um, what is Paul concerned about then in these verses? I mean, first of all, now concerning virgins, that word for virgins is male or female. So basically what he means is those who are single, because he is assuming they're virgins, that they haven't had sex. So it's it's a male or female word. Um, now concerning those who are now concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord, but I give an opinion as one who, by the mercy of the Lord, is trustworthy. He said that a couple of times, hasn't he? He said in verse twelve, but to the rest I say, not the Lord. Um, but it, that if any brother has a wife, um, verse ten. But to the married I give instructions, not I, but the Lord. Uh, what do you think he means by that? Yeah, so I'm, that's what I mean. I'd he's using his, wisdom, his own personal wisdom. 
Well, that's what I'm asking. What do we think he's doing? Because he says in verse 40, but in my opinion, she is happy if she remains as she is, and I think that I also have the Spirit of God. So what do you think he means? Not I, not the Lord, but I, when he makes that distinction. What do you think he means? Do you think? So you mean we could actually say, well, that doesn't apply to us then because that's not really God's word, that's his? See, that's what I mean. It's a, that's what you have to... That's where you go with it. That's where people do go with it, actually. So is that what he means? When he says, not I, not the Lord, but I. I'm guessing no, because you're asking. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I want you to say no. Um, but I think what I think he's saying is that all of the rest that he said, Jesus actually said. Mm. And you'll find uh, something similar or the same in the Gospels, in the Gospel accounts of what Christ actually said. And... The, uh, and what Christ actually told him during his three years that he was caught up in the third heaven. The other that he says, I, not the Lord, is what he is being inspired by the Holy Spirit to say. Yeah, so exactly. So I think, so whatever we, whatever you think about that, whether you agree with what I've just said or not, if you think that this is just Paul saying this without any input from the Spirit, then it is not the word of God. So that's what we've got to be careful of. Yeah. Yeah. And it's part of that same letter. So uh, for me, I think he, what he's saying is, I haven't heard Jesus say this, either from the gospel accounts or from my time with him, um, but this is what the Spirit is telling me, through me. Um, so if we do take that and say it's important, then we're in trouble with other things. Of course. Exactly. Unless they specifically said... Yeah. Um, How do we know? And, and our reliance is that this is the word of God. Yeah. The Lord wanted that in there. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I'm saying, I'm bringing it up only because, you know, people do bring it up and that's what they say. And, yeah, and they say about Paul that he's a misogynist yeah. and he hates women and this and that. And, it, and you know, and, and they discard some of what he says because they say, well, he said that wasn't God. It, that wasn't the Lord. It was him. So anyway. Okay. So why is he, uh, he, he's, he gives a reason for what he's saying in these verses. What, um, verse 26, he gives a reason. I think then that it is good in view of the present distress that word present can be translated present, i.e. it's already here, or impending, coming, soon. What do you think is most likely, when you read the letter to the Corinthians in any other place, does it talk about them being persecuted at all? Well, I have the word impending. Yeah, some, some have impending, some have present, and uh, I have a note in mine. Mine says present, but it, it says it could be impending. I think it's most likely to be trans should be translated impending because he doesn't talk about them under any pressure from the government or any persecution. I mean, that will come, but he doesn't talk about it. So, uh, so you're thinking that he's thinking that the end is... Exactly. I think he's thinking... Yes, and I think that not just because what he says, but but in verse 20, not just because of the present or impending word, but because in 29 he says, but this I say, brethren, the time has been shortened so that from now on those who have wives should be as though they had none. So he, he feels like it's so close, we're so close. 
that we should be um, that they should be living as if they were focused totally or they should be focusing totally on the Lord. Okay. Um, what does he say? But he's acknowledging something in these verses. What is he acknowledging uh, regarding singleness and marriage? <coughs> it's all fine. And actually he calls it whatever. It's all a gift from God. Whether you're married or whether you're single, it's a gift from God. And the word gift is the same word that he uses in chapter 12 for the gifts of the Spirit. So it's all the same word. And the word for gifts in chapter 12 means, uh, is charisma, which is the result of grace. The result of grace. So he's saying that singleness is the result of the grace of God in your life. Marriage is the result of the grace of God in your life. Think about it that way. Think about what he's trying to say then. If you're married, that is a result of God's grace. If you are single, that is a result of God's grace. Can you see now why he might say, wherever you are, whatever circumstance you're in, be content? Because that, this is a gift from God. Um, if you're single, value your singleness. Value that grace of God in your life. Um, if you're married, celebrate your marriage. Celebrate the grace of God in your life. Yeah. Um, yet so often, single people want to be married, and married people don't want to be single, and it's because of this lack of contentment and, a, and I think a misunderstanding of the fact that it is a result of the, of the grace of God. <coughs> and when you think about it, all of us, at some point in our life, will be single. Everyone here at some point in our life have been or will <coughs> be single or are. And you don't know when it's exactly, exactly. You don't know when it's going to happen. So what he's trying to get us to is an understanding that actually everything in this world is to be received from the Lord as a gift and we are to be content where we are and not constant. I don't mean all the bad things. You know what I mean, don't you? I'm not talking about um, receive the temptation of Satan as if it's from the Lord. I don't mean that. What I mean is be content where you are. But how many times do you hear people, I've, I've even, I might even have said it, if you surrender everything to the Lord, he'll give you a husband or he'll give you a wife. Surrender to the Lord and he'll give you your heart's desire. Commit your way to him. That's what the psalm says, doesn't it? Trust in the Lord. Commit your way to him and he will give you the desires of your heart. Yeah. I read of a, a single woman, who had a Catholic lady, who had prayed for 20 years to St. Joseph, the um, father of the so-called Holy Family. Anyway, after 20 years, she got fed up with this she threw the statue of St. Joseph out of her window. It cracked a guy on the head down in the street. And that was the fellow she ended up marrying. <laughs> True story. <laughs> Come on, Christian. <laughs> oh. Okay, okay. Well, well, okay. Thank you. <laughs> anyway, uh, what I'm trying to get to is be careful what you say to people. 
Be careful what you say to them. To the single, be careful what you say to them. Because it is nowhere written in scripture that God is definitely saying you shouldn't be single. In fact, the opposite is often true. It's nowhere written in scripture that every single person will have a, uh, a spouse. That's not true. And there are some people to whom God gifts singleness. And I really think it's about time we started to celebrate the gift of singleness. Yeah. Honestly, I do, Julia. Instead of this constant barrage that, you know, God wants you to be married. He wants you to be married and setting up this person to be discontent their entire life. Um, No, of course, that's it. That's it. Yeah. Okay, so if you're single, be content to be single. Trust God. Trust God with it and, and treat it as a gift. But if you are married and you uh, to an unbeliever, what are you to do? Yeah. But if you're married, what's the situation if you're married? You are married permanently. I mean, if you take this chapter literally... If, an um, if you're married to an unbeliever and the unbeliever chooses to leave, let them leave. That's okay. But you cannot put them away, i.e. you cannot send them away, you cannot uh, tell them to leave, you cannot divorce them. Is divorce allowed in, in this chapter? Or is divorce a situation that can be um, got, you know, chased after? I would say yes. Why? No, yeah, that's it. But for you, if you as a believer say, I don't want to be married, is there a situation in this chapter where you can say, I don't want to be married, therefore I'm going to divorce you? No, there is no place in this chapter. Now, I, really, we need to be thinking about that because what will happen is when you say that, someone will come to you and, well, what about an abusive relationship? And what about this? And what about that? And what about the other thing? So how will we deal with those issues? Because he's quite clear, each one is to remain with God in the condition he was called. Um, uh, uh, one who is married, uh, sorry, where are we? Um, I've lost my place. Um, thank you. So married, I give instructions, not I, that sh the wife should not leave her husband. If she does leave, she must remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Um, but to the rest I say, not to the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who's an unbeliever, so there's a separation between believer's marriage and a believer married to an unbeliever. And the whole thing is, if you are a believer, you are not to divorce. What will you say then to the person who says, um, you know, I'm being abused? What will you say? No, but I mean... Yeah. Yeah, but it, here that he has called us to peace is yeah. If the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. So it's the idea that you know, if you're a believer and the unbelieving one wants to go, let them leave because you've been called to peace, and that is a way that you are receiving peace. Now that doesn't account for the. Um, I'm in a marriage with a believer and, and he or she is abusing me. If the unbeliever 
No, I'm not, I, I, I'm not advocating that she is. I just want to have scriptural reasons for what we say, especially when we hear him say, if you're believers, you cannot divorce. You can live separately, though, <coughs> can't you? Well, it says here, uh, where are we? Um, where have I just read it? Uh, but to the married I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not depart from or leave her husband. And if she does leave, she must remain unmarried. Yes, she can remain. And that his husband should not separate or divorce or divorce his wife put away. Um, so if you leave your husband and you're married, or if he leaves you and you're married, what's the situation? If you're both believers. You have to remain unmarried. Are you going to tell somebody that? Uh, honestly, it's not. Uh, this is real, you know. No, I've had to we say that to me. We exactly. I, I believed it, but then I, I sat with my Bible and I was going to go to Bible college. I'd, I'd be done one year. I was going to finish it. I, God didn't let me go, and He brought people after people confirmed through the Bible that I was not to remain on my own. Then you met me. <laughs> This is what I'm saying. These are what these are the things that are not written in scripture. They're just not written down. But what do you do with an abusive husband? It's just not there. People tell you to stay. I know. People so, are so condemnatory. Yes. 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 So that's what I'm saying. I don't. I, I'm not condemning it. No. What I'm. What I want us to get to is what is the basis for us saying? Because I would say, of course, that was correct. But what is my basis for that? Well, it's not glorifying God where I was. That's for sure. Right. Exactly. And I, I, he wasn't able to glorify God in the position he was in. Was either. he a believer or an unbeliever? He was an unbeliever, mm. but uh, he actually became a Mormon in the end. Mm. Well, first of all, first yeah. of all... And I know Christ took that away, I understand Yeah, that. but first of all, I really, I th we have to get to a reason. Yeah. What's the reason that we would say these things to each other? I would say to you, of course that was right, you, have, you shouldn't have any guilt, there's no condemnation, all of that. Yeah. But what's my reason? What's the reason behind why I would say that? Well, Christ died on the cross. <coughs> no, 
because if you let if you allow a believer or an unbeliever, I believe that if if it, if it is a believer beating his or his wife or her husband, then that person is, hasn't understood what it means to believe in the Lord Jesus and does not have, almost certainly does not have the Holy Spirit and therefore is not born again, whether or whatever they say about believing. Now, I may be wrong in that, but I would also say to add to that, is you, would, it, would it be true if you accepted abuse day after day after day after day, year after year after year from your husband and stayed, is that bringing them closer to God? No, it's actually allowing them to get further from God. So when you break it down, absolutely break it down, I can say categorically that I am supposed to be a witness to the love and the greatness of God to my husband. If he is beating me up every day and I am allowing him to do that, a person in whom the Holy Spirit of God dwells, then I am not glorifying God, nor honouring him, nor letting my husband understand more about God and bringing him closer to God. So as far as I'm concerned, that is a categoric reason for you to leave. Absolutely but and I've positively. Well, I might be wrong. <laughs> no, <laughs> I'm not wrong. I'm not wrong. I believe it to be true. Exactly. But the whole thing is, we've got to be careful because Christ allowed his body to be abused. We have to be very careful. And he, he suffered. He suffered. And on the cross, what did he say? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So I'm not talking about us. Um, As he was doing that, he was doing it to glorify God. Yeah. Okay, but I'm taking it away from you and everything you think about yourself that you're being made to feel worthless. I'm accepting it all as true, Suzanne. I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm accepting all of that. But I'm taking the reason you leave away from you. And I'm saying that if you allow yourself to be in that relationship, you are allowing that partner to get further and further and further from God. Exactly. You are not drawing them in. And the whole point of our existence on the planet is to be a witness to the glory of God and to, and to bring people to salvation. Mm. So that's my reason. It takes it out of what's happening to me. It means it's not about my suffering. It's not about what shouldn't be done to me or what should. It's about the other person. And you also, this, this attitude throws you up against the Lord because what can you do in yourself? Yeah. What can you do with a partner that does that? Yeah. But you want that partner Yeah. That's rubbish, I'm gone. Yeah, but we're not talking about yeah. Yeah. Because I'm not talking about those issues that are 
nothing important. We're talking about, I'm really, I'm really mean this. What do you do with a person who comes for counsel who is being emotionally or physically abused by their partner? What will you say to them, I given these verses? I, yeah, I know you cannot I say that to them. Don't. You can't say that. You can't say that to them. Because well, you can, and, and I have done. I have said to people in that situation, well, can you not understand what is at the bottom of that violence? What is at the, you know, why is that? To just try and get that person to understand, well, actually, that person might be frustrated and the problem might actually be me. I might be causing an aggravation. So yeah, I will bring people into that place before I ever say, oh yeah, that's terrible, you've got a black eye, you better go. You know, you have to understand there's a reason why the other person is being not, you know, but I think you can't decide that though. I'm not, yeah. no, I'm only asking yeah. the abused person to just stop and think, why is that, why is that happening? And what is causing you know it? Why but but I, even if you know why it's happening and you yeah. understand why, if the person is so damaged from whatever's happening, Absolutely. Yes. Mm. And that is yeah. their only hope to be changed. Mm. However much you might want to be to them or try to be to them, they cannot change themselves mm. if they're so damaged. Mm. And it would only be Christ in them that could mm. change them. Mm. About we are believers, yeah, believers and unbelievers. Yeah. So, yeah. but but well, so for believers, then what what would we say? First of all, yeah. First of all, there's a difference between removing yourself from a situation where you are being abused and divorcing. There's that's one whole thing. Removing yourself from a situation and saying, actually, my body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. We're talking about believers now, and the other believers should understand that. Therefore, I am not going to allow you to do this to me, and I am not going to allow you to get further from the Lord. So I am going to remove myself from this situation until you've had time to go before the Lord and blah, 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 whatever, in wh whatever way you want to wrap that up. And but I'm very sure. quick to come at a place of safety. <coughs> that's what I mean. So that's what we're talking so about with believers. Yeah, if they're changed, right, yeah. Why would they be doing this? To exactly, them? yeah, but why would they? Be mm. because it's a gift, but then not be working out your salvation, exactly. you stay That's in the flesh. Mm. Yeah. It, there's two different things there. The gift, salvation is a gift, and then you work out your salvation. Mm. And some people have had the gift, and they're quite happy to just stay, stay in their flesh wherever they are, and then all of a sudden they wonder why they have no authority. But that's because they're, they're not... No, no. Paul's very clear in Romans. As soon as you believe, and Peter and John, and in John chapter 3, um, Jesus, you must be born again by the Spirit. And uh, Paul says every believer is a, has received the Holy Spirit. 
So there's not two, there might be more of the Holy Spirit, which I agree with, but to be a Christian, you have to have the Holy Spirit. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you are not a Christian. That is definitely, you are not a Christian. Paul will say in Romans, if any of you do not have the Spirit of God, you are not a believer. Um, Romans 8, um, where are we? Uh, however, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So you have to have the Holy Spirit to be born again, to be a Christian. So uh, even, even though you may not acknowledge that you have the Holy Spirit, if you have the Holy Spirit, you are born again. But you see, this is, this is why I brought it all up. Because these, this is the nitty gritty of life. And they're both Christians, and he professes to be a Christian. I wouldn't like to say whether he is or isn't. But she's had a hell of a life, and her boys witnessed it, and they are so damaged. And I just look at, you know, and, and you can say that. So how is it? How is what you're doing? How is what you're saying? Where is the good in any of that? No, actually, I, I was going to mention about that because some of my work in the past has been with uh, families who have had very disturbed children because of domestic violence. Yeah. And um, apparently there are four children in every classroom in this country who witness domestic violence. Yeah. And it's um, absolutely wrecking uh, the children. It's wrecking how they can then uh, make relationships in the future. And I think mm -hmm. it's an example of us being in a, in a busted up world, basically. Because yeah. um, that happened to me because my mother married a man who was a Roman Catholic family were very dysfunctional and um, I suffered because of that and that's that's why I'm single because it put me off completely mm. of having mm. relationships mm. but um, I think it's true and people do suffer because mm. it doesn't matter mm. if, if this person they were supposed to be Christian <coughs> from being a Christian now mm. they weren't Christian so no. they've gone to church mm. but they certainly weren't Christians mm. I sort of feel there's no hard and fast rules to this, is there? But we yeah. do have to understand what we're going to do as believers. That's what I'm guessing, yeah. Believers. yeah. Because yeah. I, I also had a, a, a weirdest childhood, you could ever imagine, and I am the most disturbed person. But how come I'm here with the word of God, understanding marriage? What brought me through? How did I get to this place? How can I love the word of God and believe that when it wasn't my life? So I'm different to your story, your story, your story. But there is a way to come through, and I think that's what we have to find out. How do I deal with that? That's what I'm saying. How, How do, do we deal with the nitty-gritty details? I can't do this because you did this, or you said that, or you said that. It's how is, he, how is he going to bring me through this if this is my marriage, right? Or how is he going to bring me through this if I'm counselling somebody who's got that sort of... Okay, so, that, so I want to bring it back then to the fact that... No, nobody's, it's not all the same. Everybody's got their different experiences. What, would Paul's, what was Paul's advice two or three chapters ago about what you should do with sin in the church? Now, that's Jesus teaching in Matthew. Paul says, we are to judge one another. He takes it from there, Kate, but it, it is, he says we are to judge 
believers. We're not to judge the world, we are to judge believers. And if a believer continues in sin after it has been pointed out to them, they must be put out of the church, handed over to Satan so that though their flesh might be destroyed, their spirit may be left intact. Now I'm taking that into an abusive marital relationship where they are both believers and I'm saying, okay, that person comes to you and shares the abuse that's going on, what will you say to them? You will say abuse is a sin. Violence against your spouse is a sin in whatever way that is. It is a sin. And I cannot have fellowship with someone who continues in a known sin and will not repent. To me, that is absolutely it goes right alongside that idea that if you allow them, if you stay in a marital relationship that is abusive, you are allowing your partner to get further and further and further from God. And we should not do that. So I'm putting those two things together and saying, remove yourself from that situation. Remove yourself from that situation. It do, we're not talking about divorce now. That is a whole other step that God will bring you to in his own time. And, and that will be lots of prayer and lots of looking at the scriptures, lots of understanding, lots of whatever. But the first thing in an abusive relationship of two believers is get yourself out of there or put that person out of your home, whichever one works. And I am basing that not only on 1 Corinthians 7, but on his teaching about sin and on Jesus' teaching, which you said, Kate, about sin. Put them out. Put them out. You cannot have fellowship with a person who is continuing in known sin without remorse. You can't. And actually, when you're putting them out, what does that actually effectively mean? How are you treating them as an unbeliever? You are judging their behavior to be not compatible to the person who has the spirit, who is a believer, and you're saying, I can't make that judgment about you. That's what you said, Julie. But one thing I know, I cannot allow that behavior in <coughs> the fellowship of believers. It is just not, you're not able to. And so that person has to go or you have to remove yourself. Now, I think that is really clear in Scripture. I don't think there's any doubt about that. When you get into divorce later and what all of that means, that's a, that would take further, um, further talk. But I, f I feel really firm on that foundation. <laughs> I feel I can really say that clearly to someone. This is why I think you should remove yourself because of this. I don't know. They should. They've got the Bible. They've got First Corinthians 5 and 6. So why don't they? Um, what then would be the reason that Christian marriages divorce at the same rate as non-Christian Because people don't live according to the word. They don't live according to the word. So the things that a lot of Christians would divorce about would not be as serious as major abuse. No. Most of, I mean, I think the divorce rate is just the same, isn't it? Inside or outside the church? Is it? No, because you've agreed with me, actually. No, you've I just agreed I with that. I just feel that, that with mar Christian marriages today, at the first sign of anything, it's divorce. And, and this separating yourself gives you time to think and talk and pray and be. And, and that's what I, I you know, to I mean, seek maybe God. There needs to be that distinction between yeah. uh, very abusive because yeah. you have to have a place of safety. That 
abusive people don't come forward until no. they've been abused for many years. And so when somebody actually comes to you to say something, yeah. it's it's after years of keeping it quiet and trying to go through all those yeah. things that you're saying mm. without looking at themselves. And I'm thinking of Julie's friend, 30 years yeah, like yeah. that, in a church. What's the church doing? Yeah. Tell me that they don't know that this is going they on. They do, they do, and the pastor. And they're not doing anything. No. You see, so I, I just think, yeah, we're at fault. Um, and I think it's not necessary that you're at fault. I think that's an assumption which you cannot make unilaterally. It might be that you're not at fault at all and that person has just got some particular issue that is worked out by abusing you. I'm not saying it, you might be, but, but what I'm saying is you have to remove yourself from that situation or remove that person. And I'm saying that on the basis of 1 Corinthians 5 and 6 and 7. Um, and I don't have really any problem with that. Divorce is another thing which you'd have to pray about. Yeah, go ahead. Removing yourself is okay when you're an adult, mm. but when you're abusive as a child, mm. yeah. you can't remove yourself. No. You've got to go through that and that's cost you off the way. Exactly, yeah. exactly, yeah. it does. It is. It's a tragedy. But you see what, I mean, we've got to start somewhere. Okay, we can't oh, yeah. get into every home. We can't get into every marriage. But what we can do is say, okay, we are Bible-believing Christians. Yeah. On what basis do I offer this advice or this counsel? What, what biblical basis do I have for this? So that's what I want to look at. Why do we say the things we say? And, and we have to have reasons for them. Uh, otherwise, we're just the same as everybody else. It's just my advice versus your advice. Yes. Well, you can take five, six, and seven, and you can talk to your friend about what would you do about a person who was stealing all the time or doing this or whatever. You would put them out of the church, and you have actual biblical reason yeah. to put them out. So why are you doing something different with a person who is violent or abusive in, in yeah. whichever way? Yes. I, I think what people don't realize is that you can walk out and remain married. Yes, okay. yes. Yeah, yeah. Right. Because I've walked out and I said to my husband, let's think for six months. Mm. We can't go on like this. Mm. And after about three weeks, I got divorced papers from him. Mm. So that was a different story altogether. Mm. But that, that was exactly. Where I was exactly. And, and I would say that's, that's, that's got that biblical was, basis. Yeah. Yeah. That that's was biblical. Yeah. Um, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband for otherwise your children are unclean but now they are holy um, he doesn't mean saved because you can't they're not saved each person must come to salvation um, but when you think about it where the spirit of God is is holy so the spirit of God is in you and you are in your home so if your husband is in your home he is as it were under the umbrella of the spirit of God he's under an umbrella of God's domain almost and so um, he is bound to be affected by your uh, faith so um, you are, whilst you're living together, he is set apart in a way. 
he's set apart to receive truth about God. And he's receiving that from his wife or, uh, or husband. So uh, actually, when you think about it, if you're married to an unbeliever and it's possible to stay married, which is what he's saying, don't leave because you are, you, unless there's a other reason, you are the witness of God in, in his home. And so, like it or not, he is under the influence of the Spirit of God. He, he doesn't know it, but he is. Or her, you know, sorry, I'm saying it in my... I, I had a situation some years ago with an employee, and uh, it was a matter of theft, essentially, and deceit. Anyway, so um, I initially went to the then minister of the church I was attending and uh, sort of discussed it with um, that minister. And I think it's in Mark, I went through the process of what Mark tells you to do mm-hmm. when with a fellow believer you're presented with a situation mm. and they need to be pulled up short, if you mm. But anyway, that, that situation eventually came to its um, natural conclusion. Um, but what I was most disappointed with is that when I had the conversation with the minister about what was going on and how should it best be addressed, that it was a case of um, effectively it was left to me to have to deal with it. Now, rightly or wrongly so, I had felt that the minister could have or should have been proactive mm. in confronting um, this employee at the time, but it just wasn't happening. So, um, And I was just very disappointed with it because my expectations of somebody in a position of authority like that um, you know, should have at least had some input. Yeah. But nonetheless, it didn't happen. No. Because we've had a situation like that, and I think reverend that we deal with, he sits on the fence a lot, and rightly or wrongly, I don't know why they don't want to get involved, not in a situation like that, but just about issues with the Bible, and they won't, say if we're having a Bible study, they won't, they won't give their opinion, mm. and I think that's, that's not very helpful, because they are supposed to be advocating for God, but they just sit on the fence. We don't. We know. We know. We're on one side or the other. So what's Paul's understanding now concerning virgins? I have no command, but I give my opinion. I think that it's good in the view of the present or impending distress. That is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound with a wife? Don't seek to be released. If you marry, you have not sinned. If a virgin, now he goes, that word for virgin is, a, is feminine now. She has not sinned. Yet each will have trouble in this life, and I am trying to spare you. What does he mean? Exactly, <laughs> for ages. There's trouble in marriage, there's trouble, and so you, you might be better off if you're single. And he's saying it because this, the time is short, and he's expecting tribulation. And in fact, we may say, well, he was, he was, he was expecting the Lord to return and, and this tribulation, but actually he was quite right. There was going to be major persecution of Christians. Mm-hmm. So he was saying the time is short, and it will be short for you Christians. And so maybe it's better if you're single. Because if you're, uh, let's say like ISIS now, and you're threatened with your own life if you, um, if you don't denounce Christ, it might be easier for you to do that than to look at your husband or, and children and not denounce him or renounce him if they are threatened. And that's what he's saying. 
it's, it's, in all, it's not just the focusing for God in your ordinary daily life, like you get up and you take, have your quiet time. Although that's good, you can do that freely. He's also saying, when the chips are down, if you've only got yourself to worry about, it will be much easier for you to stand for the Lord. Um, okay, and then what do we make of, um, just to finish up, what do we make of um, um, verse 36 to um, the end of the chapter? Let's read it. Somebody read verse 36 to the end of the chapter, please. If any man thinks he is behaving improperly towards his virgin, if she is past the flower of youth, and thus it must be, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin. Um, all the way down, please, Christian, to the end, yeah. Nevertheless, he who stands steadfast in his heart, having no necessity, but has power over his own will, and has so determined in his heart that he will keep his virgin, does well. So then, he who gives her in marriage does well, but he who does not give her in marriage does better. A wife is bound by law as long as her husband lives, but if her husband dies, she is at liberty to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. But she is happier if she remains as she is according to my judgment. And I think I also have the Spirit of God. Thank you. Okay. What's it, its overall message in this chapter then is what? About being married or being single? Either one is fine. Be content where you are. Stay as you are. When you come to the Lord, stay as you are. You know, don't seek something different. But if you've got a choice to make and you're going to start praying for one or the other, why not focus on the fact that God has gifted you where you are? Now focus on honouring him where you are. And that's what he's going to say, isn't it? He wants us to serve the Lord without distraction. Um, for him, being unmarried meant he had much fewer distractions. Um, live in the knowledge that you are where God wants you to be. That's the reality, isn't it? Honour him now. Especially in view of the times we live in. Um, and then um, uh, this, this talk about if any man thinks that he is acting unbecomingly towards his virgin, the word daughter is not there in the original text. So this can mean either a father with um, his daughter or it can mean people who are betrothed, remember they were betrothed for a while in a Hebrew relationship, so Jews, they were betrothed, they weren't technically married like Joseph and Mary, so it was shameful when she was found to be with child, because they hadn't gone through the marriage ceremony, so what he's saying is, if you're finding, it's better for you to stay single, but if you're finding you can't stay single and you're acting unbecomingly towards your intended, get married, either way. I, I prefer that he's writing not to um, a father, but that he's writing to engaged couples. It sounds a bit rough. Yeah. If anyone thinks why he's acting unbecomingly towards his virgin daughter. Yeah. Why is it all been added in there? Because it's possible that if, it, that the, if any man, it's possible in the way that is written that it could be a father to a, a daughter or... Um, unbecomingly may not mean exactly what we, m no. we think it means also, unfairly. remember, unfairly, um, you know, um, uh, holding her back from being married or yes. pushing her into being married, either way. Um, you mentioned earlier at the beginning about fathers and 
There were different types of marriage, yeah, and that, that was one of them, yeah, yeah. Um, for widows, if you get a chance to be remarried and you want to be remarried, there's no shame in it. And if you don't and you want to stay single, that's fine too. He thinks he, he would advise to stay single. Um, that would be my advice, I have to say. If I were, I don't know, because I've never been widowed, but I, I, that would be my advice to someone, I would say, um, for all the reasons he says. Um, you can be undistracted in your focus for the Lord. Um, but either way, it's not sin. Now, what he wrote, I mean, we've had spirited discussion about, but what he wrote would have been radical in that culture. I mean, I just don't think we can even get into how different that would have sounded. So if you can do some looking into the history of what it was like then, I really would advise doing it because it just opens up what it must have been like in Corinth, all these different relationships. But you notice he, does, he takes all of those relationships and he doesn't say, go to the tent companions and tell them they're living in sin. He doesn't say, go to the people who are going to live together for a year and, and then, get, then be called married. Tell them they can't do that, they're living in sin. So we need to be very careful. We didn't discuss this. We perhaps could have done. But we need to be careful about on what basis we come to people and on what basis we counsel and advise people. But then that would be different for unbelievers. Definitely, totally different unbelievers to believers, absolutely. Mm. We've got no business saying to unbelievers, you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't do that. We aren't to judge unbelievers. Yeah, definitely. So he's, he's not having to condemn them because he's got such confidence yeah. that the Holy Spirit... I remember in Australia, my daughter wasn't sure whether she should become friends with a couple down the road who were lesbians who mm. had two children. Mm. And it was a very complicated relationship. Um, but they, you know, she was absolutely sure that she should mm. because she had confidence that if they became believers, they would change right. their ways. Right, right, right. Uh, and it was interesting because they used to have this church thing at Christmas these two women, it's called Christmas lights and really elaborate animals everything, fantastic thing and these two uh, um, lesbians said to Amy are we allowed to come? Mm. Amy said mm. of course you can mm. and, and took them you mm. know, you've got to have that confidence that the Lord definitely, but also the confidence to know that God wants everybody yeah. he wants everybody mm. he doesn't care if you're a lesbian or a homosexual or he doesn't if you're an unbeliever he doesn't care. He wants you to come to him as you are. And we have to be prepared to reach out to people as they are. It's only as we've been with the Lord for a while that we start to even open up the Bible and think, oh, well, I'm, I don't live like that. Maybe I should. You know, so... Yeah. So, I didn't think that would be very interesting, that chapter. <laughs> Honestly, I thought, oh, we all know this stuff. <laughs> so, Father, thank you that um, your word is interesting and it stimulates discussion and it helps us to see our way clear and what we're to do and say. Help us to be um, slow to speak and quick to listen. Help us to, um, 
to really make sure that we have um, a strong and solid biblical foundation for what we believe. Help us, Father, to, well, just give us wisdom, Lord, and understanding and clarity as we seek to help people, Lord, and to live in a way that honours you. Help us to first take the plank from our own eye uh, before we try to take the splinter from others. But help us to be unafraid, Lord God, inside the church, inside the body of believers, to be unafraid to help people with their splinters. And Lord, I thank you. I thank you that you are a great and holy God. I thank you that you love us as we are, but that you won't leave us this way. And I thank you that we are um, walking with you. And what, on earth, what a wonderful thing that is, Lord. So we praise you, Father, and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.